You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Terry reached his limit right before dessert was about to be served. We were at Thanksgiving dinner, and at Terry's request, we tried to keep the conversation away from the calamity that has been visited upon our democracy in the form of Donald J. Trump's win in the Electoral College loss of the popular vote by now more than 2.5 million votes by nearly 2%. And we did. We tried to stay away from the topic, but somewhere between the end of the meal and before dessert arrived, we all got on to Trump and Bannon and Stein and Clinton and recounts and Russia, and people were getting into it. Everyone was in violent agreement. We were all liberals and lefties there. We weren't on a mission to bring any idiotic relatives around because there were no idiotic relatives in the room. Everybody in the room, relatives included, uh, were sane and equally appalled by what's going to happen on January 20th. And Terry announced that he couldn't take it anymore, rose from the table and went to the kitchen and told us that he would be back when we changed the subject. And we did change the subject. And as he walked back into the room and sat down, he realized we were having a spirited conversation about rape culture. And he stood back up and left again because he didn't want to be there for that one either. So in deference to Terry, we quickly changed the subject to Insecure, a terrific new show on HBO, just finished its first season, been renewed for a second season, uh, written and uh, executive produced by Issa Rae, who is a fucking talent. And if you're not watching Insecure, I order you to go watch Insecure right now. If you need something to binge on that will distract you from our national calamity, this is the show. Better than Westworld by a lot. Insecure, please go watch it. You'll feel better. I was hoping, as some callers have requested, some callers to the Savage Love Hotline, that we would move on from politics after November 9th, that we could have some opening show rants that weren't about elections, that weren't about third-party candidates, that weren't about Democrats, that weren't about Republicans, that weren't about those sorts of issues and that kind of crisis. But unfortunately, it ain't over, and it ain't going to be over for four more years, and we're going to be talking about this a lot, except in my house, where we are in now week three of a complete and total news blackout. Terry does not want the news radio on. I'm an insomniac. I need to listen to the radio at night to fall asleep, but we can't have the radio on at night right now because even on the BBC, all they're talking about is Trump and the collapse of democracy potentially in the United States. And Terry can't hear it. So I ain't sleeping. But here, here we're going to still have to talk about it. And let's talk briefly before we get to your questions and today's show about Jill Stein, who I swore I was never going to have to talk about again. I was so looking forward to moving on from Jill Stein. But as all of you probably know, and as some of you probably kicked in for, Jill Stein raised money last week to finance challenges to pay for recounts in Wisconsin, where she has filed so far, and also perhaps potentially Michigan and Pennsylvania, where fewer than 100,000 votes through those three states, 100,000 votes total through those three states to Donald Trump. And if recounts demonstrate, and some computer wizards believe that recounts may demonstrate, that there was there were errors or there was manipulation, those states could flip to Hillary Clinton 
theoretically, potentially, and if those three states flip to Hillary Clinton, she wins the Electoral College. Why is Jill Stein the one raising money for this and filing for it? I couldn't tell you, but I will tell you this. If the shoes were on the other feet, if Republicans had lost the Electoral College, but had won the popular vote by two percentage points, by more than 2.5 million votes and fewer than 100,000 votes spelled the difference in three crucial states, and a foreign state, foreign actor, appeared to have manipulated and gamed the election in favor of the Democrats, Republicans would be doing everything in their power right now to claw the White House back from Republicans. Democrats typically play ball, play fair, seek to work with. Republicans do not play ball. They play war. They do not play fair. They do not seek to work with. They seek to destroy or make end runs around. So you can take it to the bank that if the shoes were on the other feet, it wouldn't be some third party financing recounts in three states. It would be the Republican Party financing recounts in three states to try to play every card they could to either claw back the White House from the Democrats or delegitimize the Democrats as they were heading into the White House. So although I couldn't bring myself to donate money to Jill Stein, I support everyone who could and did, and I support this effort, if for no other reason than to drive the Republicans crazy, to put it into the heads of Americans to remind Americans at every stage, at every step, that Donald Trump lost the popular vote by an enormous margin and but for the Electoral College would not be the president of the United States. And it's working. It's driving them crazy. It's driving him crazy. Donald Trump this weekend from the bat shit tower in Manhattan tweeted out that he won the popular vote if you subtracted the millions of votes that Hillary Clinton got illegally. The millions of people who voted illegally for Hillary Clinton take them out and he won the popular vote. There are two things at work there. First, Donald Trump can't lose. Donald Trump can't, his ego can't take it. His ego can't take this constant hammering at the fact that he lost the popular vote by 2.5 million Votes and counting. So now he's going to claim that that's actually not the case, that he won the popular vote, in fact. Also, this is the Republican Party through Donald Trump laying the groundwork for more voter suppression efforts going forward. There are no cases of vote fraud that have been discovered in this election except for one woman who voted, attempted to vote twice for not Hillary Clinton with her vagina, but Donald Trump with his bright orange hair. But they will point to, as proof of vote fraud, Donald Trump's claims of vote fraud in an effort to purge the voter rolls of people who are likely to vote Democratic in 2018 and 2020. We have to be vigilant. We have to defend the vote. But we have to keep driving them crazy. The more rivets that pop out of the SS, white supremacist Donald Trump shitboat, the better. So, words I didn't think would escape my lips during this election cycle, which doesn't seem yet to be over. Thank you, Jill Stein, for what you did last week. Although I want to second Dan Pfeiffer here who tweeted out, I really wish Jill Stein had not waited until after the election to be so concerned about a few thousand votes tipping the election to Donald Trump. 
All right, coming up on today's show, on the Magnum version, I have a long conversation with my pals Daddy, Tony, and Sparky, hosts of the No Safe Word podcast about extreme kink, milking machines, 24-7 master-slave relationships, and gay orgies in Texas, which are definitely a thing. That's on the Magnum. You can subscribe to the Magnum at savagelovecast.com. That and tons of your questions coming up on the regular show, the regular Savage Lovecast today. Hi, Dan. I've uh, been a long-time listener. got a question. Um, a uh, new development has occurred in my marriage. Um, partnered, uh, non-monogamous, gay couple. Um, started dating somebody else, and it is um, developing along, I think, relatively healthy lines. But I'm a little confused on how to move forward, I guess, with incorporating potentially a third and with a goal of a three-person full parody sort of relationship. Is that even possible? Like after being with somebody for 11 years and having a life together, adding somebody else into it? Can a three-person relationship work where one person is entering into the equation uh, 11 years into this thing that's an ongoing concern? Yes, of course it can. Anything can work. Also, define work. Often when people talk about whether a relationship can work, they mean can you keep this thing going until one or the other, or in this case, all of the above, are dead someday. That work means the relationship never, quote unquote, in italics, failed. And what we mean by failed is that both the people or all three of the people in that relationship outlived that relationship. And that is the only instance where we consider getting out of something alive a failure. And I don't think that's necessarily a failure. People come together and relationships go as long as they go. And then people sometimes are together for the rest of one or the other or both or all of their lives. And sometimes people are together for a time and then they part ways. And I think the only times when we need to regard the relationship that ended without everybody going to a funeral home as a failure is if there is bitterness and recrimination or there was abuse or there was some reason why the relationship exploded where there was mistreatment and unloving behavior. And sometimes there's unloving behavior and that leads to the end of a relationship and then those two people or those three people are able to circle back and reestablish a friendship. And the unloving treatment is then forgiven and the friendship goes forward. But you know what? In a lot of relationships that don't end, there is sometimes unloving behavior that is forgiven and that romantic relationship goes forward. So unloving behavior that ends a relationship isn't necessarily in all cases evidence that that relationship is a failure. Give it some time. And you may in time reconnect, be able to forgive, bury those hatchets and have a friendship. And then retroactively, you can apply the success label to that relationship that ended even if nobody's dead. All of that applies here. There are lots of people out there in triads, lots of people out there in quads. And just as a lot of gay couples have always been likelier to be out and open about being non-monogamous, you toss that off at the top of your call like it was – nothing particularly remarkable and it really kind of isn't lots and lots of gay couples are non-monogamous there are lots of gay couples out there with boyfriends there are lots of gay couples out there who are dating other people and there are some high profile public triads i think of the gay triad that heads up the cocky boys porn empire and all of this openness and honesty around non-monogamy and now around uh poly in gay land, I think stems from the openness and honesty that's required to be gay at all in the first place. If you had to look your mother in the eye and tell her you were a cocksucker, being open about being non-monogamous doesn't seem so fucking scary. Whereas over in straight land, being open about being non-monogamous or kinky or whatever else, that seems pretty scary because you never had to look your mother in the eye and tell her you were sleeping with people that 
they never expected you might be sleeping with. So you have role models out there. You just have to get out there and look for them. And all the poly writing and all the, the books out there about poly, more than two, the ethical slut, a lot of these are directed primarily at and written primarily by people who are heterosexual or pansexual. And it may not feel very gay specific, but I promise you, I've read both those books. They're terrific books and they are sensitively written and inclusively written and they apply to you too in your relationship. But I would encourage you as you explore things with this new partner to be open to two things. That yes, it can be uh, an equal ongoing relationship. Although anybody in a couple for a long time, there are power imbalances in every relationship. That's just hard wired. And sometimes those power imbalances shift. And sometimes there are concurrent power imbalances where one person has more power in one area than the other person does and vice versa. And there are going to be power imbalances here. And one of the power imbalances is going to be you guys have an established 11-year relationship. You have a history together and this, this intimacy and familiarity. And a new person coming in is going to have that history, of course. The, the three of you are going to create a new history together that is including that person. And over time, that grows and grows and will feel more equal. But don't force it at the start because you can't make it equal at the start because it isn't going to be equal at the start because it can't be equal at the start. Get out there, read some books, enjoy it, redefine what you mean by work. Maybe you guys will be together two, three years and it'll be awesome. And then you will part ways and be friends for the rest of your life. Or maybe you guys will be together 20, 30, 40 years. There's no way of knowing how it's going to play out in the end. Just be good and loving and decent to each other and make an effort along the way. And the relationship is likelier to be a success whether you're together forever or not. Hi, Dan. I'm a 21-year-old girl from the Sacramento area. My boyfriend of a little over a year and a half recently moved about 25 minutes away to a cheaper area so that he can start saving money when we move to Austin, Texas in about six months. Um, since he moved, I spend the night there about two nights a week, and whenever we have a mutual day off, we like to get really high, take a nap, and then we always have the most amazing sex ever. And I always have an orgasm within like three or four minutes of him eating me out. And it's just like the best fucking sex of my life. But now I feel like I just can't come unless I'm high because it feels so much better than when I'm sober. Also, I've also, I've only ever really came a few times from any boyfriend or hookup of mine. And now I'm wondering if I may have created a groove in myself and now I'll only be able to come if I'm high. I've tried not having any edibles or smoking for a few months now, and I just can't seem to have an orgasm. So now I'm just really wanting to reach for the edibles or weed. Please help. I'm inclined to tell you to get high. If you needed a vibrator to get off, I wouldn't hesitate, and no one would expect me to hesitate to say, then use the goddamn vibrator. Like I've always said, if a dude needed a canoe and a goat to come. You would walk into his bedroom for the first time to have sex and there would be a canoe and a fucking goat. There'd probably be a collection of canoes and several dozen goats waiting there for you. And if a woman needs a vibrator to come, she should be as open about it as a dude would be about whatever he needs to come and just lay it out there. If you need pot to come, pot is your friend. Pot may be what your body requires. This may be how your orgasms work. You need this little pharmacological boost. You need the THC. And yet... You're trying to wean yourself from it because you're afraid you've created this dependency. And you hear that same thing with people around vibrators, which I regard as a tool, the hammer that you built that orgasmic house with. 
that they're afraid of becoming dependent on it and then always needing the vibrator to come. And my take is always, well, maybe you do need the vibrator to come. Maybe that's what your body requires. And it's not about you being dependent upon it. It's about you finding the tool that you need to build that orgasmic house. It's what you need. And there it is. And thank God you found it. Otherwise, you wouldn't be coming. I think this is maybe drug paranoia and bias and feeling deficient because you need pot or you're dependent on pot to have your orgasms. And maybe that's not helpful. Maybe struggling as you have now for months to get there and come without pot is a futile effort. Maybe pot is what you will always require. That said, what does pot do when we're high for a lot of people during sex? It disinhibits and it really puts people in the moment. And there are other ways to disinhibit, maybe with therapy, you can disinhibit, you can work on your sexual hangups, whatever they might be, if indeed you have them. And there's yoga and mindfulness and breathing techniques and other ways you can psych yourself up to this place where you're just really existing in the moment and you have released yourself. That'll take work and that'll take time. And you can do that, I think, concurrently with smoking pot every once in a while and shoving your boyfriend's face into your lap and telling him to eat until you have one of those amazing edible enhanced orgasms. Hi, I've been in a relationship with my girlfriend for about six years now, since 2010. My question is, when I met her, she was already engaged. She approached me, and I just wanted to be friends, and I was curious, you know, whatever. Long story short, um, she ended up being in a relationship with me romantically, and her then-fiancé gave her permission to, you know, kind of just feel it out. You're bisexual. Let's see what happens. And he thought he was going to have like a girlfriend and a wife. No, that was not my position. She knew that going in and I made that clear to him as well, but yet I compromised myself. So anyway, she ended up getting married. I gave my ultimatum that she needed to be divorced before I engaged with her again. And it took her another two years after that. So we've been together officially since 2013 and she has a son with her fiance, and I'm still in this position of her son knows about us romantically, but and he's eight years old. He'll be nine in January, and there's still this feeling of uh, well, not feeling we're not per her to show affection in front of him. Like I can't kiss her with a greeting her with a kiss. I can't say goodbye with a kiss or too long of a hug. Like there are these stipulations. So I feel a certain way that I'm not being my authentic self in front of uh, her son and in front of her with her. So I feel, do I need to end this relationship? And we've had multiple conversations about it. At what point do I draw the line and end it? Or should I give her an ultimatum? And how long of a time frame should I give her before I cut it off? Like, you didn't meet my goals. I don't know what that looks like. Please help if you can. I understand your girlfriend's impulse. She doesn't want to be out to her eight-year-old kid about being poly because it's going to require having an awkward conversation about who she is as a sexual person with her eight-year-old kid. She's going to have to come out to her kid as... Buy. But there's also another consideration that some parents have when it comes to being out to their children about having other romantic partners. And it's this concern that letting you know, your eight-year-old kid know that in addition to your primary partner, your spouse, that you have another romantic connection with someone else, the parent worries, the parent who needs to come out worries that that may make the kid feel insecure about 
their parents' relationship, that their parents' relationship may be unstable or that you might leave their father for the girlfriend and it could they, they worry it'll make the kid feel insecure and tense about what's going on and it requires the parents to do a lot of reassuring if there is indeed nothing for that kid to feel insecure or tense about. Another consideration for a lot of people who find themselves in this circumstance is that kids aren't discreet. Kids talk and they talk to other kids and other kids can be cruel. And those talks and kids sharing information about their families and family structures with strangers or getting back to parents of friends can have consequences for the kid. And for the parents, so I don't know what part of the country you live in, but if you are living in, I don't know, a state that was painted blood red on last Tuesday night, this kid telling other friends that his mom is bisexual or his mom has a girlfriend in addition to having a fiance, in addition to being in a relationship with his dad, that could blow back. That kid could wind up being ostracized socially. That kid could wind up creating problem, even havoc in the lives of his parents by accident, because in some places, people who are poly or in open relationships have faced kind of brutal discrimination and sometimes social condemnation. So I don't know what is motivating your girlfriend to, to keep mom about this. You need to have a conversation with her, and I would love to have been able to get her on the phone and ask her. But I suspect it's not just she's embarrassed or ashamed of you. She may be concerned for her own safety, for her job, for her fiance's job, and concern for her kid and her kid's safety and her kid's social life. And she may not feel comfortable burdening her child with a secret that that child then has to keep to protect his family, which would then, he would know, would then include you. And that can be a crushing burden to lay on the shoulders of a child. And that kid may keep that secret as best they can and then confide in a best friend someone they really feel that they can trust. But you know what? Eight, nine years old, best friends sometimes break up, sometimes retaliate against each other. And it can be vicious. And a secret that was entrusted to a friend, a best friend, can then be revealed maliciously later because kids are shits a lot to other kids. So I'm not saying it isn't painful for you to have to be discreet around your partner's eight-year-old son. I'm just saying there may be reasons that have some legitimacy that may be site specific to where you all happen to live. And you need to have a conversation with your partner, not about ending the relationship. if She doesn't come out to her kid right now, but where this goes in the future, as the kid gets older, is this closet that she's pulled you into? Is it forever? Or is it just till the kid is mature enough to handle this information, mature enough to be discreet about it without it being a crushing burden that, his parents laid on his shoulders. Hey, Dan, Tech Savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. Um, I have a question. I'm 28 and I want to know, is there a link between acne and sex? When I Google it, most of the articles say that sex makes your skin clearer or some shit. But since I've been hooking up with this one guy every day for the last few months, my face is like a total mess. I never had that much acne to begin with. Maybe like, I don't know, just right before my period, I have like a little bit of hormonal acne, but right now my chin's blowing up. And so, yeah, I wanted to know, is there a hormonal component to sex I mean, this, or is this kind of the sex I'm having? Um, because, well, you know, I often make out with him right after he goes down on me while his beard is still wet with pussy juice. Um, I don't know, does saliva cause breakouts? We've been messing around a lot with spit and I let it dry on my face while we're having sex. 
it's becoming kind of a problem because I'm a performer. Any help would be really great. Thanks a lot, guys. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Nicholas Compton, Assistant Professor, Department of Medicine, Division of Dermatology at the University of Washington. Hey, Dr. Compton. Hi, how are you? I'm very good. Uh, thank you so much for, for helping me tackle this one because I didn't know what to say to her. But let me give you what occurred to me that I might say to her if I didn't go find a guest expert as awesome as you and you can tell me sure. how wrong I am. My advice would have been to tell him to shave the beard. Yeah, I think that is an excellent – I think that's excellent advice. Okay. Well, thank you. I guess we don't need you and I will proceed. No, no, no. Tell me why that's excellent advice. I have an anti-beard bias that's pretty pronounced and a lot of people would have said I'm just like trafficking in my beard bigotry. But obviously, my beard bigotry is a stop clock and it's right in this instance. Please explain why. Yeah, I think it's right in this instance. Um, I mean, the the first thing that I would do in in talking with this patient would be to try to figure out whether she actually has acne or not. There are a lot of different things that can... um, that can pose as acne or masquerade as acne, um, just irritation, or uh, there's a thing called perioral dermatitis uh, that's very common in women, or just folliculitis, which is inflammation of the hair follicles, um, often from bacteria or, or other things. But I think in her, if this is in fact acne, I think the most likely cause is the, is the beard. And um, the reason is, is that that her, the, her boyfriend's beard is causing a lot of irritation to the skin. When that skin gets irritated in somebody who is prone to acne, she states that she has had some acne kind of hormonally related around her menstrual period. So in patients who have acne or are prone to acne, any kind of irritation of the, of the skin can, uh, can worsen acne. So it, acne is caused by clogging of the, of the pores, the hair follicles. We've all seen them on our noses, the blackheads. Mm-hmm. And what happens is you get the skin cells that clog those pores and after that, you get a lot of uh, production of, of the oil on our skin. It's called, it's called sebum. That's from our sebaceous glands. That sebum doesn't have anywhere to go, and so that causes the hair follicle to rupture. That rupture causes a lot of inflammation, that, and that's the redness that we see with, with acne. With irritation from a beard or from lots of other things, classically a, somebody who plays the violin or the chin strap in kids who play football or whatever, any kind of irritation to that skin that's prone to acne irritates the um, what we call the follicular epithelium or the cells kind of lining that hair follicle. And that makes them want to be more sticky and clog that pore even more. So I think that's probably what's going on uh, with that. She also talked about uh, saliva and spit. And saliva can be very irritating uh, to the skin. We've all, anybody that has kids... Um, has she also seen- mentioned pussy juice. Right, she did. She did, she did mention that, and that probably could be could be fairly uh, irritating as 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 well. It would certainly um, irritate me. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> right. But you know, anybody that anybody that has has seen kids or somebody who licks their lips a lot, they get a lot of irritation around their lips just from the saliva, and so I think that's probably also also contributing. Okay, so what would your advice to her be if she were your patient? We've diagnosed the problem: the spit, the boyfriend, and maybe a little bit of the pussy juice too, and the beard. So what does she do? Not kiss the boyfriend, get a better boyfriend, get a boyfriend with alopecia? Yeah, I think finding a boyfriend that has alopecia might actually make, make some sense. Um, no, I, I would, um, yeah, I would, I would suggest that she ask, ask him to, to shave his beard if he's willing. If he's not, then I would, I would recommend that she, they try to limit the kissing if possible 
around sexual, sexual activity, which is not the answer somebody wants, somebody wants to hear. No. Um, I suppose uh, there are some other things that could be done, which would be um, trying to treat some of the acne that she has already. And, and by treating the underlying acne, it may make, make her less prone to uh, acne from, from excessive irritation. Um, she says that she hasn't had much acne as a, you know, as a teenager, but it's mostly this perimenstrual flare that she gets. And that is a common, pretty common type of acne that we see in women that is hormonally um, uh, triggered. And that it can be very successfully treated with uh, oral contraceptive pills or a medication called spironolactone. The other name for it is aldactone. Can we talk quickly about sebin again? Yeah. So I've never heard this term before, and it sounds so much like semen that it piqued my interest. So basically, <laughs> our, our skin is secreting all over our body at all times sebin. We're covered in sebin yeah. everywhere we go. Yeah, it's a sebum actually, so S E B U M, and it comes from, <laughs> from the sebaceous gland, and it's really it's just a lubricant. Um, we don't really we don't really have a great understanding of of what it does or what it really what it's for, but it does lubricate the skin. So in you know in your teenage teenage kid that's got the sort of oily oily forehead oily face, that's that's the oil that's what's causing it to be to be oily, and we see that increase a lot at puberty as the result of, of sex hormones, so testosterone. Um, women also have testosterone, and that, and that is also what drives, uh, drives that sebum production in, uh, in women. We think it's just a, just, just a lubricant. We do see it um, all over the body. In fact, um, there are glands around the nipples and glands in the genital area that are kind of modified sebaceous glands that, that also produce this sebum and, and, and lubricant. How could I have been doing what I do for so long and never have heard this term before? Because people are <laughs> rolling know. around on top of each other, covered in sebum. They get yeah. up from having sex with someone covered in that other person's sebum, and it's a lubricant that I've never heard of. I'm, I'm just shocked. You learn something new every day, and I really appreciate you bringing me this new info about this lubricant I wasn't aware that I'm soaking in. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There probably is a lot of transfer of sebum from one person to another with uh, with sexual contact, among other things. Dr. Nicholas Compton from the Department of Medicine Division of Dermatology at the University of Washington. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It was a pleasure. Hey, Dan. A long-time listener of the show. Just last night, I decided to take a break uh, with my girlfriend. Uh, uh, we've been together for about a year. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess for a while, I've just been feeling kind of antsy. Uh, this is my first long-term relationship that I've ever really had, but I've been wanting to see other people, you know, fuck other people and potentially be with other people. I feel really bad because we generally have a compatible relationship. Um, there's just certain things like um, sometimes like her mental health can be a bit tough to deal with. She suffers from depression and uh, tends to lash out sometimes. And, uh, you know, there's other things too, like kind of, She's not as sexually adventurous as I like to be, and her libido is much lower than mine. At the same time, you know, we have good times. There's a lot of good things between us, and, you know, I mean, I'll admit it. I'm I'm scared of being alone, you know. Uh, it really makes makes me nervous to, to let her go, and I'm worried I'm making, making the wrong decision. You know, I love her, and, you know, I, I do want to experience new things and be with new people, but at the same time, I'm worried I won't find this again, and I'm worried it's going to be a long time before 
I do find it again. Um, that's real scary, you know. Settling down does require some settling for, and no two people are perfect for each other in every possible way. But if just a year into this relationship, you're ready to, quote unquote, take a break because you want to sleep with other people and see other people and not just sleep with other people and see other people. It sounds like you want to fall in love with someone else. It sounds like you would rather have someone else as your partner because you say you're worried you may not find this again or it may take a while for you to find this again. And by this, you don't mean a carbon copy of this person that you were with over the last year, but the feeling the, the attachment, the, the, that love. You want to find love again, but clearly you want to find it with someone else. Otherwise, you wouldn't be taking a break. I would encourage you to have the decency, as difficult as it might be, to not take a break, but to break the fuck up unambiguously. If indeed you are not going to get back together again with this person, and that does seem unlikely considering your stated intention – about what the, it is you're out there looking for post her, don't leave her dangling. Don't leave her sitting there with false hope that you are just sowing a few wild oats and then you will be circling back to her. It can be difficult when you're breaking up with somebody who has other issues that you should be considerate about and compassionate about. For instance, that she has depression. It can be difficult sometimes to break up with somebody cleanly and unambiguously when that person has depression or other mental health issues or other issues around employment or pressures or whatever, it can be really tempting to let them down easy, let them down gradually, to put a gloss on it rather than just ripping the Band-Aid off. And that's the wrong way to go about it. You'd still need to break up with somebody, even if they don't have depression or other mental health issues or pressures or family issues or anything else, you need to break up with them with some consideration and some compassion, unless they're an abuser, in which case, fuck them. It's about your safety and self-care at that moment. But if they're not, and it's been an otherwise good relationship and they're a good and decent person and you feel good and decent things about them, you can break up with them still with compassion and consideration. You can Reach out to their friends that you've gotten to know, to their family members that you've gotten to know, to let them know that the relationship is ending and now might be a good time for them to come through as family and friends for this person because you're not going to be able to come through for them anymore because you need to take yourself out of the picture because the relationship has ended. And your fear of being alone? Yeah, some people wind up alone. That happens. But as Joan Price said on this show, and I thought it was a really wise observation and a pithy way of putting it, it's better to be alone because you're alone than to feel alone because you're with the wrong person. And it sounds like she's the wrong person, particularly if you were making this kind of take a break move just a year into the relationship. Don't put a gloss on it. Don't take a break. End it. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old gay guy new to New York City and at grad school here, a magnum uh, listener, I have now learned the hard way why you shouldn't fuck someone in your class. This guy and I hooked up at our audition and, well, we started seeing each other a month before the course began. At one point, he was getting paranoid that people were talking about us and he made me promise not to speak to anyone about us in our class. Well, I, I wanted people to know because I was falling for him and I, I wanted him to become my boyfriend. So I was hurt and sad that he wanted our relationship to be a secret, even though he's out of the closet. 
but I kind of understand why he wanted this kept on the down low. I told him I had already spoken to some people and I was that I was getting to know, but I promised not to tell anyone else. Alas, I broke that promise and with the wrong person who went back to this boy and told him my betrayal. I've taken your advice, Dan, in the past to have a distance from an ex before you can become friends. And I am friends with a few of my exes, which is great. I mean, I thank you, Dan, for that. I wouldn't be without your help. But I'm not sure what to do in this situation. I see him every day and it kills me. I really fell for him and I can't tell. I can tell this is hard for him as well. Anyway, what should I do, Dan? I trust your judgment here. In my heart, I really want to get back with him, but I don't think that's likely. But we can't even be friends because he still feels very hurt by my betrayal. So we're playing this awkward friends but not friends dance at school. And every time I see him, I'm filled with such shame and regret. I've been, it's been almost a month and I'm finding it almost impossible to not let it affect my work, with, which is stressful enough. Do you have any advice besides giving him as much space as I can? And Do you have any advice on how I can salvage this friendship? Do you have any advice on how to rebuild trust? Stop cringing in the corner and stop blaming yourself for this. Go to the guy and say, look, I'm really, really sorry. I did break the promise that I made to you that was a betrayal in the grand scheme of things. On the betrayal continuum, I think it was kind of a piddling betrayal myself, but I did betray you. I did break the promise that I made you. Then you need to say to him, look, the promise I made you, the promise you forced me to make to you as a condition of being in this relationship, is a pretty stupid fucking promise and a pretty unworkable one and an unfair one. Unworkable in the sense that, you know, a small campus environment, college, Everybody ultimately finds out who's fucking who. That's not a secret that keeps. Even if I kept my mouth screwed shut. Unworkable. Unfair. Also in that as a human being, I have a right to my experiences. I have a right to confide in people and to share with people that I choose to share with what I'm going through just as friends and to get their advice and to be heard and to be known. Now, I apologize that I confided in the wrong motherfucker, and that was my mistake. My misplaced trust really, in a way, echoes and parallels your misplaced trust in me. But again, circling back to the promise that you extracted from me, it was a bullshit promise, and you extracted it from me under a kind of duress because it was a condition of staying in this relationship, and I was really crushed on you, and I wanted to keep seeing you, so I made a promise to you that I should not have made. Because I don't want to be your closet secret boyfriend. But if you're going to date me, obviously it's going to have to be out in the open or not at all. And I'm really sorry. Again, I am. And I think you should really be sorry. You should be genuinely apologetic about your betrayal. But you need to put it in context. And you need to help him put it in perspective. Because the promise that he extracted from you, unworkable in that environment, and unfair to you emotionally, really setting you up, setting this relationship up for failure. And you have to ask, and you don't go into it, but you have to ask, and I, we're sitting here wondering why he wanted this to be a secret. 
Is it just because it's a small college environment and he didn't want his business being discussed everywhere? Is it that? Is it that he's embarrassed to be dating you, which is shitty and unfair of him? What is it? It might be clarifying to put that question to him and ask him what the problem was, why he wanted this relationship, your relationship with him, to be this great big secret. Because if it was the latter, if it, he was embarrassed to be with you, that's not someone that you should want to be with. That's not someone that you should be able to love because that's clearly someone who is incapable of loving you. Hi, Dan. So I am a poly woman. I'm straight. I'm pretty independent, confident, self-insured, sane, and I keep attracting guys who I have the same problem with. This has happened three times over the last couple of years, and it's driving me crazy. Here's what happens. Uh, I'm very upfront with the guys that I get involved with that I am poly. That's not changing. That's actually not a problem for them. They're, they're cool with that. That I'm very sexual. I love having sex. I love having sex with people who are really into having sex with me. That's not a problem. They're really into that. I'm very affectionate. They're very into that. You know, a few other things. I, I prefer my independence. Nobody's going to be moving in with me. They're totally on board with that. It's great. And we have a great relationship for a few months, and it seems like it's all going well, and I start to really emotionally get invested and trust them. And then here's what happens. Emotionally, they just shut down. Um, they just have no more warmth for me. They don't seem attracted to me anymore. They, they don't want to have sex with me. They, they avoid it. They don't see me as much. They don't talk to me as much. And when they do talk to me, um, it's it's weird. All three times I've gotten the sense that they're kind kind of trying to undermine me, get me to question my own values, my own judgments, my own boundaries, my own needs, my own perceptions. It's really crazy gaslighting stuff. I mean, it's not like, you know, large scale, but it just happens enough that I've seen the pattern. And I tell them at this point, look, you are not acting like you want to be in this relationship with me anymore. Do you, you, are you trying to exit this relationship? And they've all told me, no, I love you. I'm still really into you. All that sort of stuff. Um, but they don't act like it. And eventually I have to break up with them because it's my heart's just breaking. This has happened three times to me in the last two years, Dan. How do I not attract these people? Apparently I, I keep attracting them. I, they're all men. I am straight. Um, and, um, I, it's just driving me crazy. What's going on? How can I avoid this help? You detect a pattern and perhaps there is one and you're closer to these events than I am by far. They actually happen to you. So maybe there is a pattern, but maybe there isn't a pattern. Human beings, there's all sorts of studies show that human beings will see patterns where none exist. Our brains are wired to organize things into familiar patterns, into predictable patterns for our own comfort and sometimes for our own self-exoneration. So maybe there's a pattern here, maybe not. You describe what sounds to me less like a series of colossal shitstorm failed relationships involving gaslighting as just kind of dating three relationships that didn't pan out in two years. That's dating. I don't think that's the universe necessarily ganging up on you. And the other piece that you describe where the guys seem to be losing interest in you sexually, calling less, less emotionally committed by their, through their actions, demonstrating they're less committed to you, less interested in you. And yet what's coming out of their mouths, it, it contradicts those actions. Oh yeah, I totally love you. I want to keep seeing you. That's really common. Speaking of identifying patterns, that's really common. That is a pattern where people don't want to do the hard work of 
actually dumping someone. They have a hard time looking someone in the eye and saying, I don't want to keep seeing you. So they make themselves less available through their actions. They communicate. I'm not into you, even though what's coming out of their mouths contradicts that because they're forcing the other person to do the dumping. They're forcing the other person to do the hard emotional labor of terminating the relationship. They don't want to pull the trigger. They're going to make you pull the trigger. Less gaslighting, in my opinion, than just cowardly bullshit. As for the critique of the way you date or the way you fuck or whatever else, that could be gaslighting. It could be an attempt to mess with your perceptions, to mess with your boundaries, to mess with you, or it could just be the dating discovery process where they realize that you're not right for them and they're making kind of those hallelujah passes people can make in those instances where they're trying to prune a person or carve a groove into the person so that they can fit together. And that's not necessarily not kosher. People say to people all the time, you know, if we keep seeing each other, then you got to stop smoking or you got to lose the beard or you got to come out to your family or whatever else. People will say to someone, I have this condition of us continuing to see each other that requires you to change something about the way you behave, about the choices that you make going forward about your self-conception, perhaps. And then you can accept or reject those conditions and leave or stay. And that's not necessarily itself gaslighting. That's, again, dating and groove carving, which is a part of dating. We carve grooves into each other so that we can fit together. Nobody arrives fitting together. Talk to your friends. Ask your friends if there is a pattern that they've detected. And then you can disregard everything I've just said. If you can get some people who've witnessed your dating history with these guys who've been privy to these interactions in real time, and they think that you three times in a row drew these unlucky straws and ended up with shitty, manipulative, gaslighting guys who were more interested in tearing you down and fucking with your head than being with you and fucking you, being fucked by you, then okay, you're right, I'm wrong, I take it all back. But if your friends are on my side, if your friends also don't detect a pattern, I would encourage you just to take a step back and rather than getting all tense and stressed out about this, just tell yourself the simple answer is probably the correct one. You're dating. You're dating multiple guys. Three of them, it didn't work out and there were some similarities and now they're gone and out of your life and you can move on to some guy or some guys that are better suited for you and guys with whom it will work out. Hi, Dan. I have a question about extreme kink in a relationship. The kink that I am kind of questioning right now is um, dominance to the point of master-slave to the point of owning somebody in a relationship. Um, I've always viewed owning somebody as kind of an unhealthy outlook to have when in a relationship, because you need to maintain your self-identity for a healthy relationship to flourish, you need to be your own person. So the question is, Dan, is a master-slave relationship a bad thing? If it is completely and fully implemented into a relationship to where it affects almost every single day and almost every single part of your day with this person, this sort of power complex, is that a recipe for disaster or... Is that something that with clear communication, clear boundaries, and a healthy relationship, is that something that can flourish? 
and really lead to long-term success because you're being very pleased. Is a power complex a bad thing? Joining me today to help tackle this question and a couple of other kink questions, if they'll hang out, Daddy Tony and Sparky, creators and co-hosts of the No Safe Word podcast, a comedy podcast about kink where they talk about topics of a sexual nature with a sense of humor recorded, if I may say, and I have been a guest on the show twice, recorded in a suburban Seattle dungeon. (laughs) (laughs) Where better to do your comedy kink podcast from? It's always good with a a boy tied up in the middle of everything. It's a little distracting, but... It is more helpful. It is a little distracting. One time when I was a guest on the show, there was a very hot guy tied to the table, hooked up to, it's called a Venus? Yeah, the Venus milker. And which is kind of like, if you've ever seen a cow uh, in a milking (laughs) machine, it's like one of those, but for a a guy's dick. Yeah, exactly. It's it's very distracting to try to hold a conversation while someone is being milked by a machine. Inches yeah. from your face. Especially not, when they rudely... to a big tank, though. We don't, like, drain them dry or anything. You don't? You don't skim the cream off and put it in your coffee later? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's tackle this question first, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about your show. So, total power exchange relationships. I think TPE is the uh, mm-hmm. acronym he was perhaps groping for. True master-slave, fully implemented. Is that a recipe for disaster? Have you ever seen that work? I have seen it work. Um, I think that it takes a, an amazing amount of energy from both uh, the, the dom or, and the sub or the master and slave, and, uh, as he was uh, referring to. Yeah, he wasn't asking if it worked, but whether it was healthy. Yeah. And I, I think that the, there might be a misconception out there that um, because they have those roles that the, the sub is giving up their, their identity, their self. And I don't think that's always true. Um, most of the subs that I've ever played with have been uppity bottoms and, um, (laughs) (laughs) something is a kind of attention whoring. Yeah. But I think, I mean, they, they, those relationships don't happen overnight. They are negotiated. They are, they are developed over time. And I, I have never seen one where, um, in my, in my limited experience where they were, Full on 100 percent dom sub 24/7 365. Mm-hmm. Um, that is a lot of energy and um, to be in a never ending scene. Basically, yeah. it would be like having vanilla sex 24/7 for the rest of your life yeah. with this one person. Not so possible the, to sustain. The, so I think the I think that what happens in those is that actually uh, the the dom and the sub develop an emotional relationship as well mm-hmm. and. During their play and during their their daily lives, they may have these roles, but uh, I think they're probably very healthy relationships because of the amount of energy and effort and care that go into developing those. I think my concern is that this caller had said that uh, can you do this type of relationship or does it require that the sub uh, have some sort of identity? And I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I think even in a total power exchange, that doesn't take away the uh, slaves' idea that they have hopes and dreams and wants. They and just may choose. And they can be snarky. And right. I, I talked to somebody who uh, was seeking a TPE relationship as a top, and he said this thing that I thought was very funny and revealing, that he didn't want a blank slate. He didn't want somebody who was completely mm-hmm. groveling, submissive. He wanted to own someone, not no one. And that kind of submission yeah. struck him as like the negation of self. And he wanted to own someone in air quotes i'm air quoting all around my microphone right now he wanted to own someone who is a person where there was some like grind and push and pull and there was a relationship that was colored by ds yeah 
I have a, a friend in town, some people that we know, and they've been on our show before, where it's not a master-slave relationship. It is a uh, owner-pet relationship. And the pet... Uh, Goldfish, kangaroo? Uh, no, dog. dog. Okay. Puppy. Iguana. Puppy, of course. <laughs> um, he carries him around in a plastic bag full of water wherever he goes. <laughs> like he just won him at the fair. And I think the 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 uh, pet comes home from his work day and gets into his rubber dog outfit. And he has a cage and a bed beside the bed. He doesn't sleep in the main bed. And he spends most of his home time in that pet mode. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have a vacation that he wants to go to sometime in the future and shares that with his owner or, and it doesn't mean that he doesn't have a job with friends and all those sorts of, of normal human interactions that happen. The entire identity of who he is hasn't gone completely away just because he's a dog. Mind you, this person I have met numerous times. I have not seen this pet ever use a human word. I don't think I know exactly who you're talking about. And yeah, I haven't either. Right. Wow. And, I, and it's completely possible, but I think it's a unique relationship that takes a lot of time and effort to define and figure out who they are and how this is going to work and who makes the decisions. It's not something you're going to just decide to be a master and then jump right in to the relationship. It's I've a lot of work. Trouble. I once got yelled at at a, a sex conference uh, for academics and researchers by someone who is a kind of a high profile sex researcher who is uh, into S&M and he thought the way that I had described a lot of S&M relationships, the way I've described I think almost all of them, uh, this thing I've, I've said many times and I will use right now and he blew up at me about it and confronted me about it. When I said and, and continue to say, and I will say now, and I'm nervous about saying it, I shouldn't be, uh, cops and robbers for grown-ups with your pants off, that this is play, that this is pretend. <laughs> and he was saying that was very disrespectful because for some it's not play and it's not pretend that perhaps this guy really is a dog and it's insulting of me to suggest that this is pretense or play acting and not who this person is at their core. Because, you know, you don't really own someone. Hmm. And he, he, you know, his position was that because he's not allowed to legally own someone, he is, as the sexual minority, oppressed in some way. Right. Because he can't own his slave. Yeah. And I was like, oh, you're a crazy person. I'm going to go over here and have a cocktail with these people when you're done yelling at me. Uh, is that insulting? Is it cops and robbers for grownups or with their pants off and orgasms? Or is it something more meaningful, deeper and essential? Well, I think actually playing cops and robbers is playing Dom's side because usually the cop is the dominant and the, and the robber gets punished because he's been a very bad boy. Or gets elected that's president one or the other. You <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to go there today. I think in the context that you're using it, it, it isn't offensive to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a daddy-boy relationship with my, with my husband, uh, which in thinking about this question and, and getting ready for today's show, I was thinking a lot about my, my own dom-sub relationship and that um, when we met, uh, we were we met in a in a at a leather bar. I was in leather. He was in rubber. We went home. We played. He called me daddy. He oh, I the leather him man. Boy. The rubber man should be friends. So oh, the leather <laughs> the rubber man should be friends. And Oklahoma reference for all you kids out. And as time went by, we also developed a very romantic relationship, an intimate relationship. We got married. Mm-hmm. Um, and I call him sir now more times than he does me. <laughs> Pisses really? him. Off. Well, no, but I mean, I do when he when he's annoying me. Uh-huh. I'll just like hang my head down and go yes, sir. And it just pisses him off, um, but no, we're we're now a couple, and we do we have a couple relationship. 
And there's um, this Dom sub thread that runs through it. I've yeah. seen you guys out. I've interacted with you mm-hmm. guys. There's this Dom sub thread that runs through Yeah, you through talked to him without my permission. I did. I'm sorry. I'm very bad. You should punish me later. Um, <laughs> and it, it seems like something that you can press a button and activate when you want to, and it's there. But like, I think this person has in his head, the caller, that uh, you know a master-slave relationship, a Dom sub relationship requires, as you said earlier, Daddy Tony, this constant outlay of energy the, yeah. this constant dominance and domination and most of the ds relationships that i've witnessed it's there and really pronounced when they're going for it but otherwise it's really hard to perceive unless the dom oh. activates it or the sub sort of nudges the dom toward activating yeah. it by getting happens a lot. <laughs> so that's i think that's the perception that a lot of people have is that it is this intense you know every single waking moment um, and I don't. I have not experienced that in the relationships that I've had, and the relationships that I've seen. So the good practical advice for this person would be get out there in the kink community, meet some people who are in master slave DS owner pet relationships, and see what the lived experience of it is like, as right. opposed to the novelizations or the yeah. porn. And I think he's going to find that they are healthy, normal relationships that just have a a power component to them. I would say that I have seen a couple of relationships out there where there is a real master slave type of relationship where everything that the sub went to uh, in their interactions with the, with their dominant was just giving over everything. They made no decisions themselves, but that was a part of their identity. And I think that's the key part here is and still maintaining Baptists and opposite sex couples. <laughs> right. The wife They're... submits joyfully to the husband. Right. And or voting for Trump. Um, <laughs> but it's very rare. It is extremely rare. And in, at the time that I saw it, I was like, I don't understand how that could possibly work, especially from my world. I've always been a switch. So mm. for me, it's like I need to kind of go back and forth uh, a little bit. I don't see how somebody can have that as their identity, but I can still respect the fact that they do. Hey, I had a question. So you talk about BDSM, S&M, leather, et cetera, every so often. And I'm curious if the thing I've encountered here in Texas is unique or not. So I've been hanging out with this group of guys who it's this kind of wonderful mix of like social, let's hang out, let's have a gaming night, let's have beer, let's have normal parties. And then also, let's get 60 guys together wearing leather and spandex and gear and other things of that sort and have a big old orgy in the countryside. And I don't really like Texas, so I keep on thinking of moving, but I really like this social group. And I'm, un- I'm curious, is this unique? Like, did I, have I encountered, like, a unique social construct? Or does, like, Seattle have one of these, and Chicago has one of these, and Boston has one of these? Because I really like it, because it combines, like, all these wonderful... We actually vaguely seem to care about each other to some degree. And then I also get to wear leather boots and fuck some guy in the middle of a cornfield while 50 other guys are doing the same thing. Like, is this unique or is this just other cities have it and I just somehow haven't heard of them? So if he moves to Seattle, will he find groups of gay men in leather fucking in the middle of cornfields here? No. <laughs> cornfields here. We don't have cornfields is the first problem. Also, it's wet outside, and that's just a mess, and we're Seattleites. We don't do that. Um, so but, if fuck in the middle of Amazon's headquarters. Yeah, <laughs> Amazon headquarters. <laughs> that's where the groups are getting The Experience Music Project is really appropriate. Um, <laughs> I hear the nerds really like the crazy. sci-fi museum. I, the, I think the biggest thing is that it's going to be different in 
each city. Uh, so there is something like this in a lot of cities uh, that across the country. Maybe not Cheyenne, Wyoming, uh, but Boston, Chicago, but San Francisco. But maybe. Yeah. You never know. I think the thing is, is that each city is a little bit different. Here, one of the very first things I ever uh, did in the kinky world was go to a party uh, for guys into latex rubber gear. And that party has been going on since the early 70s. It started in in uh, San Diego, and then it moved up here uh, many years ago. The guys who had been doing that party, one of them passed on, and they they gave that party to someone else. And it's been continuing on all this time ever so since then. gay orgies aren't Texas-specific phenomena? No. no. <laughs> Isn't that even weird? Even kinky ones? Yeah, even kinky ones. So happens the... in places where George W. Bush and Rick Perry have not been the governor? They didn't build that? <laughs> <laughs> That's why George Bush was always clearing out the, all that brush. That's right. On his ranch. Boots. So it, it seems like he found his way into, he found his guys. He found his yeah. scene. Mm-hmm. Of healthy, kinky, fun, gay guys who get together to watch movies and hang out and go to shows and do whatever else. Go see Little Mermaid when it comes in on the big Broadway tour. But also can then <laughs> find a cornfield and have a fuck fest. Yeah. Yeah, which is really kind of cool. Also, I think the other thing is uh, stay in Texas. If you said it's not that bad, stay there. We need you to vote there. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think – We've got uh, to stop clumping up. You know, just to derail ourselves on the election for a minute, Hillary Clinton's going to win the popular vote by a lot Yeah, because liberals and progressives are clumping up in the big blue states and mm-hmm. leaving you – know, there's not going to be a purple state anymore anywhere else. There's going to be the east coast a little bit of it and mm-hmm. the west coast and then – Blood red murder psychos, yeah, running every other state in the country. So that was your PSA. If you're a liberal progressive, maybe yeah. you should stay in Texas and adopt some kids and don't take them to the gay orgies in the cornfields, but <laughs> teach them how to vote. Yeah, exactly. I think that I've run into a lot of people who have moved, and I myself moved to the East Coast at one time and had to find a new tribe of people to hang out with and start doing new kinds of play. And there's the danger of it takes time. Mm-hmm. So if you move to to Seattle, like that party that I was talking about, uh, it's by invite only. I've never now. been invited. Uh, I'll send you an invite. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've lived here for 25 years and I've never been invited to this party. Yeah. It, well, it's only like 30 guys or so. Uh, it's kind of a small thing, but it happens every year. But you got to find the right people to get into mm-hmm. it. And I've seen as many people come into town and be able to find that group of of people that are getting together and having this kind of both community and play scene. And then I've seen people who haven't been able to find it and get frustrated and then they become embittered and then they move, either move back or they move on to another place. There's also another option. Like if you come to town and you can't find your group or find mm-hmm. your way into an established group, you have the option of creating your own. Yeah, yeah that's true. You can throw a party. Yeah, And I don't, I mean, well, even here in Seattle, but I w- I'm thinking of, of, of like BDSM fraternities that exist in the United States. One of the first uh, groups that I belonged to in San Francisco was the 15 Association, which was a long-running BDSM fraternity, a fraternal organization. It wasn't a, we didn't have a frat house or anything. Mm-hmm. But those but wouldn't you have liked to? <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> um, there was plenty of frat paddles, Oddly but not a, frat, <laughs> not a frat house. No, but we'd have sex parties. We'd have play parties. We would have lunches. We would fundraise for different organizations. So there's an organizational component of these groups as well, where there's Hellfire, Chicago Hellfire, 
There's uh, well, we have we have a leather. We have, we have right here in yeah. Seattle. I don't I don't think we can go on without not mentioning my favorite event of the year, which is put on by the Seattle Pups and Handlers, also known as CPAW, yeah. which is called Camp Canine. We go up to the gay campground about an hour north of here. And this last year, how many, it was almost a couple hundred people camping out in the woods and tents and, and all that sort of stuff. My puppy went a little crazy and came up with track lighting. And, uh, we had the gayest, uh, campsite ever and people were playing wherever. It was a great place to, to get to know a bunch of other Kingsters and have fun out in the middle of the woods and it was an event that we uh, advertised. And, yeah, we the whole created puppy a, scene is relatively new. It's a new phenomenon. It's kind of a burgeoning kink. Like well, probably ten years old. Like ten years ago, you didn't go places and see guys in puppy masks very often. I was. If you did, it was probably me. I was one of the <laughs> first first so ones is, doing it around you, here. So this yeah. is a new. You party. invented it, right? Oh God! Like Seapaw, <laughs> for example, is a new organization. Yeah, yeah it's People within the last three together, years. Created an organization, started having parties, started having events, and and grew their scene. Mm-hmm. They just don't have a cornfield. And it, the Pacific Northwest. it was from people who said, "I want to have that kind of of experience. I want to do these things. So let's get together and create our community." And I would say that CPAW is a great example of a very strong community of people that really love each other and support each other. Um, they've been doing that this week as they've been uh, uh, wrestling with the aftermath of the election and trying to figure out what to go forward. It's been really great to see. And it all came from a group of people that needed that connection I didn't know and Donald built Trump it for was themselves. to deport the puppy community. Oh, yeah. We're probably first on the list. <laughs> no, we're <laughs> too cute. So. We're too cute. So to recap, the advice is go other places. You can find these kinds of scenes. If you go to that other place and you can't find your way into the existing scene, or maybe there isn't one, then get off your butt and create it. Yeah. Right. Or be a little patient. It's going to take a while to yeah. build up to fucking in the cornfield. But it, it, yeah, and it isn't, it isn't particular to, uh, to Texas. It happens, I mean, everywhere that I've, that I've ever been. It's, there, there have been those either small organic groups or big I was just at Vatican City and I didn't detect any activity of this sort there. Oh, they didn't take you to the secret room in the no, back? They didn't. Well, you're, you're not 12 anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Next trip. Sorry. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 20 something heteroflexible girl. Um, I just started seeing this guy who's actually my ex boyfriend that I dated when I was a teenager. And when we were first started dating, I was a little bit more into like BDSM stuff than he was, and it really freaked him out. But since we've gotten together again, he has told me that he is into a lot more of that kind of stuff, including urine and um, scat. And I told him that I could maybe try the like golden showers kind of stuff. And um, I'm not really sure how to tell him that I'm not into the scat thing. He's had girls that he's dated in the past that he's told really shame him for it. And I don't want to make him feel like he's a terrible person, but I'm just not really sure how to let him down easily. Um, Any advice that you would have would be great. Thanks. I'm going to defer to your infinite wisdom and experience on the subject of scat, which for listeners who don't know what that means, that means shit, dumping deuces on each other. So take it away. Oh, good. Tuesday, um, November 8th. <laughs> the, 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 yeah, that's when <laughs> voters took a shit on our democracy. Yeah. The ultimate scat play. Yeah, it was, it was 
The large orange turd moving into the White House. Let's not think about that. Let's no. think about this um, inner problem. Straight people, they're icky, aren't they? they like yeah, we take a couple of nice normal calls from, it seems like, well, at least one gay dude. We don't know about the other dude, whether he was a master slave, straight or gay yeah. relationship. But, you know, the one gay dude, like nice, normal, friendly, like go to movies, go to the cornfields, fuck. And then straight people, what is up with the straight lifestyle, you guys? I am not entirely sure how, how expertise <laughs> we're going to be able to, to bring to this because the infrastructure for cleaning out ass that I have installed in my house is <laughs> amazing. So yeah. uh, I'm not particularly <laughs> well versed in this, but I do know. That's so some- funny about right wingers and. And homophobic bigots who scream and yell about gay people and shit and shit on your dicks and you're all covered in feces. The mm-hmm. lengths we go to to avoid, avoid that that happening to us and our dicks. Um, yeah. We go to great lengths, as you you have installed literal plumbing apparatus to yes. avoid. We're not rushing. <laughs> We're boy. rushing toward butt, not toward turds. Good boys don't serve gravy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I do know a few people who are in it, and I I really have to commend this woman that. Uh, if she had decided to freak out on him and say, absolutely not, ooh, and you're gross, by the way, fuck you, I think she would have the a little bit of right to because she came out about her kinkiness back in the, when they had their relationship early, and she said he freaked out on her. And shamed her. And he probably shamed her, as some people do, when someone comes out to them about their kink because it just put to the center of his mind his own kinks. And he was freaking out at her about her kinks, but what he was really doing, or seemed to be freaking out at her about hers, he was really freaking out about his own. Right. In that moment. And I I want to celebrate the fact that she has a much more advanced sexual maturity than he does because she is held back from from that kind of of revenge. And she's actually concerned about expressing to him her lack of interest without making him feel bad. Right. And I was Which is totally fine. She doesn't have to. So I was thinking about her um, and that uh, basically I think what – and I and I agree. She was very mature about the way she's handling this and she does um, – in all kinks, everything is negotiated. And I think that she can, she can negotiate and say, no, that's not within my wheelhouse um, without two wrongs being a right and shaming him. And um, you know, say I'm willing to explore this. This is within my comfort zone. Display, which but, people lump in. People who aren't kinky, people will, or, or don't know, uh, will often lump in uh, golden showers, water sports, piss play with scat with mm-hmm. shit. Sorry, piss play is like that's just some hot water, especially after yeah. a couple of pitchers of beer. That's just hot water. Mm-hmm. There's no comparison. And I think, <laughs> oh. and maybe this you is don't need a breathman afterwards. Scat negative of me, but I think the internet was invented so that people into some very extreme, very unique, very high bar to clear things for partners mm. that that you just can't ask to like expect to be indulged around this. The internet was invented to help you all find each other, right? Where mm. you know there are websites, there are, you can be open even about on mainstream kink personal sites like Recon, which is a great big kink personal site for uh, gay kinksters. Mm-hmm. You can be open about this and other sort of extreme fetishes and you can find other people are into it. And uh, so my feeling is if I were her, I would just say that's never going to happen. There are people out there who are, who would welcome that and are into that. It's your Mm -hmm. job to go find those people, but I can go this far and no farther. And that was going to be my point. Um, Thanks Dan. Um, (laughs) Um, No, but yeah, I mean, I, I will do X, Y, and Z with you, but for this, you're going to have to, and, and I'm okay with you going outside of our relationship and seeking that out. And some people wouldn't be okay with that. Yeah. Per- the, the- well, I, I'm assuming I don't, I mean, most 
It sounds like she would be okay with it. She that. would be okay. I would hope so, yeah. But there are some people who, and this isn't always about kink shaming. It's not always about kink negativity. Some, uh, you know, Emily Ophie, who used to write Dear Prudence, called them libido killers. Even if you're not doing it with your partner, knowing that your partner is into this kind of, you know, there's a symbolic role we play sexually in each mm-hmm. other's lives too. That We have symbolic weight and symbolic importance. And if you're out there doing something or interested in something that just shatters their abstract image of who you are sexually and erotically, that can make it hard for someone to tap back into you. Mm-hmm. For instance, being with somebody who is a non-offending pedophile. There are people out there who have partnered with people who are non-offending pedophiles and love them and are also part of their support networks to help them never offend. But mm-hmm. there are other people out there who just knowing that your partner is into children makes you incapable of connecting with that person sexually because it's so disconcerting and off-putting. Mm-hmm. And that's just a fact. And you know, for a lot of people, being with someone who is into scat would have that same sort of libido shattering, libido killing effect. We ran into this on the show not too long ago where we, we had talked about uh, scat play uh, as a topic of, you know, this is out there and we know nothing about it and we're not into it kind of, ooh. and we went to a spot of, of denigrating a little bit. And then we heard from a listener who had said to us, uh, you, you kind of, of ruined the kink uh, for me and, you know, made me feel really ashamed about it. And I, I really had to kind of examine then thinking like, okay, well, I don't want that feeling on my kinks. Is there really something inherently different about scat play? People don't choose their kinks. Right. People with kinks should not be ashamed of them. I don't think people who are pedophiles should waste their time feeling ashamed because no one who's a pedophile chose to be a pedophile. And I'm not equating pedophilia with corporophilia, which is interesting feces erotic. Right. Uh, of course, pedophiles have nothing to be ashamed of so long as they are non-offending pedophiles. A pedophile is not necessarily a sex offender. Anyone who uh, rapes a child, touches a child, sexually assaults or molests a child uh, has something to be ashamed of. But just being burdened with this unrealizable Sexual with the sexual orientation, as James Cantor, the sex researcher, uh, has defined it, that's nothing to be ashamed of. Acting on it, however, definitely something to be ashamed of. But people don't choose their kinks, and people don't choose their and some kinks uh, are a real burden. And I would say this kink is a real burden, uh, particularly pre-internet. Mm-hmm. It was a real burden, mm-hmm. and so there should be some empathy. But there also has to be understanding coming in the other direction from people who are into something this extreme that this is going to be a bar that most people can't clear. And thank God you're. This kind of kinkster now with the internet out there that allows you to get online anonymously, find your poop community, find other people who share this fetish, and and thank God, thank God, thank God, yeah. you did this now as opposed to thirty years ago when you would have to negotiate it or roll it out at some point, and invariably in almost all cases encounter rejection. Yeah, now you have options. Where, yeah, there's various different where resources where it's not a non-issue. It's the baseline, right? And uh, I was recently talking with uh, Sub about doing some play, and and they were fairly new to to me, and I didn't know much about them. And they came out to me that they were into that kind of play, and just floated it out there as a possible, a like floater. a yeah, a little a little <laughs> fart to see whether or not it would stick. And I was like, nope, not going to, uh, not going to go there. And it was totally fine. I don't think it really colored my my thoughts about this person, they're pretty kinky and I've played with them anyways. Uh, even knowing that they're into this thing because it doesn't really affect me but at you all. you made a floss and brush first. Yes. Um, but 
more. They had a Tic Tac. <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of orange Tic Tacs. <laughs> Sorry. You got uh, the head shake from the producer. <laughs> <laughs> you got the eye roll and the head shake. Tic Tacs. Are for, we don't have Skittles or Tic Tacs in this room. Anymore. We just have giant bowls of them everywhere. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I don't think it's really colored my thought about who he is or whether or not I'm going to play with him because he's into it. My main concern was, are you doing it in a way that is safe? Are you, and ironically, you know, there are a lot of issues related to, to that kind of play that you have to be concerned about. Giardia is a hepatitis. Yes. There's numerous kinds of, of, of safety protocols that you really got to put in place and so I'm concerned about her alienating him in any sort of way. She shouldn't do that because she needs to make sure that he's going to be safe. But she shouldn't feel inhibited about having limits of her own. Yeah, and, so and be able to say, no, this is – I'll go to here with you. But for that, let's look at – I will help you explore other avenues for you to be able to fulfill that, that, that kink. Or not. Or not. But I, however, I don't know where you know where they're at in their new relationship. But <laughs> Other um, avenues that I will not accompany you down. Yeah. You can go explore yeah. that kink. Um, yeah, she could get him something like, uh, you know, scent filtering gas mask or a hazmat suit or something in order to, I don't know what tools that, that scat people use to help keep things, uh, clean, but she can help that with that disinfecting wipes and stuff like was- that. That, can, that support can be okay. Okay, but just to be clear, movies I saw. <laughs> circling back to the caller, 20-something het girl got back together with her ex-boyfriend. He kink-shamed her back in the day around her BDSM desires. He mm-hmm. rolls out his desires, which are, at least in one instance, much more extreme. How does she shut that down without shaming him? She just says, that's a limit for me, period. Yeah. And that if yeah. he reads shame into that, that's his problem. And you can't let him manipulate you by freaking out about you having limits to get you to do things you don't want to do. You're allowed to have your limits we empower you to have your limits, be mm-hmm. clear about them and non-judgy about them, and you're not doing anything wrong because you won't go there. Yeah. And don't equivocate it. You right. Just be clear. You know, this is not up for negotiation. Yeah, you don't have to apologize for it. You don't have to say – That's something women do in, in many instances where instead of saying to a man – no, they say, well, I don't know, or maybe, or let's right. talk about that. Maybe, uh, uh, don't equivocate. Like you said, don't equivocate. Yeah, be it's clear. A no. Yeah. It's a hard no. Right. So quickly for our listeners who've enjoyed you guys, where can they find your podcast and what will they find on your podcast? You guys don't do sex advice. Not necessarily. No, uh, we've had people send in letters and ask uh, some questions, but we're trying to get them before. That's usually when we call you and have you come over and do it. I'm always happy to do it. <laughs> You just like the playroom, you pervert. I like the I like the boy in the milking yeah. machine. That yeah. was that was fun to watch. We do a variety of of topics, and and really sometimes we we get uh, subjects from our listeners who say we want to hear about this type of thing, or we take it out of the news, or we look uh, to see what is happening out in the community and try to address those sorts in of things in all the king communities, and there right. are many and varied. When we were first envisioning this, we were envisioning it like a conversation that you would have at the in the back of a bar. You're sitting there with a circle of friends having cocktails, and somebody says, "Hey, what about this? This kink? That this kink? kink this? What's this flogging thing I've been hearing about?" <laughs> and so we discussed that in um, in in detail. And mm-hmm. I I've always been somebody who I'm, I'm a I have a history in comedy. I've been doing stand up off and on since I was a young lad. And so I've always used humor in in any kind of in, in every aspect of my life, and I think that I when I found when I was doing a lot of prevention education work, 
uh, with an ASO, an aid service organization down in San Francisco, that when you add humor to something that could be kind of a scary or icky or tense, it's tense. conversations about sex I always make people tense. Yeah. It's just like with sex, you need the release of climax. With t- conversations about sex, you need mm-hmm. the release of laughter. Yeah. The show's great and really funny, and I've always I enjoy when I come on. And I would, and I'm a listener. I'm a weekly listener. You're on my iPad, oh my God. Or on my phone, and I would encourage other people to subscribe. Where can they find you? NoSafeWord.com, and you can go to iTunes and Stitcher and all the normal places. Just put in NoSafeWord, all is one word, and you'll find us right there. And is it just for gay men? No, no, it's for everybody. It's by by gay men, and we talk about things from a gay men perspective. But you know, let's face it, we're big old girls too. So, uh, <laughs> and really, most of the things that we talk about apply to to most uh, communities. No and matter. we have we have women listeners. We've had women guests on the show. Heteroflexible women, all genders, all everything. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a yeah, show for our community, right. our our hum, humanity community. Thank you guys so much, Sparky, Daddy Tony, hosts of the No Safe Word podcast. Look for it on iTunes, NoSafeWord.com. It's a terrific show, and you should be listening. And every once in a while, if you're listening to No Safe Word, you'll hear me on that show too. Hi, I'm calling with a comment for episode 526 for the caller who was worried about his thoughts about children. Uh, You opened your question by saying that you're having OCD-like thoughts and uh, obsessive worries that you might be a pedophile is uh, something that you can experience with OCD. That's a known type of obsessive thought. It doesn't mean that you are a pedophile. But if these thoughts or worries continue to bother you, despite Dan's reassurance, you might want to seek out a therapist for an assessment. If you are experiencing OCD or any related anxiety disorder, there are very effective treatments that can help give you relief. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 526, the woman whose husband liked to uh, suggest that she not dress so provocatively. I was just thinking that red flags were flying off in my head. This is exactly what partners who like to control and manipulate their partners do. They don't come out overtly and say, you have to wear what I tell you to. They use little small persuasive tactics to sort of goad you into thinking maybe I should cover up a little bit more. And then next thing you know, you're thinking maybe I shouldn't drink unless my partner's around in case something bad would happen to me. And next thing you know, they're controlling your whole life. So I realize this person's married. Maybe this is only one thing, but I would definitely, definitely be paying attention because these are major red flags. Hi, Dan. I'm calling with a comment for the woman who called in on your most recent episode uh, with the Trump supporting family, and she wasn't sure what to do for the holidays. I totally agree with you. This is not the Christmas to be civil. I am a white middle class lady, and I have been hearing voices from people of color recently, um, particularly Hari Kondabalu on Politically Reactive and uh, Two People on The Read, which is an excellent podcast, saying um, if you are a white person, you have unique access to Trump supporters that most people of color don't have. Most people of color don't have Trump supporters in their family that they can go home for Christmas and fight with. So I would just encourage listeners of your show, if you are white, if you are generally feeling safe in the world most of the time, um, to maybe push yourself to have that fight with your family. And if not, uh, what you said is also great that your leverage over your parents as an adult is your presence. So if you can't go home, tell them why. 
and we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. There are still tickets available for the Savage Love Live Christmas special in Portland this Friday on December 2nd at Revolution Hall. Tickets are at portlandmercury.com slash Savage Special and in Seattle at the Neptune Theater this Sunday, December 4th. Tickets are at thestranger.com slash Savage Special. And speaking of Christmas and the holidays, the only gift that works for the most cherished people in your life and also your worst enemies is a subscription to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. It's twice as long with no ads, more guests, more calls, more me talking my head off. Doesn't your Trump supporting grandpa need to hear guests like Daddy Tony and Sparky? Yes, he does. Go to savagelovecast.com and click on the gray gift button to gift the Lovecast. Follow me on Twitter at Fake Dan Savage. Follow the No Safe Word podcast on Twitter at No Safe Word underscore show. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at Rescue and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading. Bye.